Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writer's Block Podcast. I'm your host, J.R. Havlin. Tonight's episode brought to you by Leisure. It's not just for suits. Listen, I know it's been a while since I posted my last episode. I was taking a little breather. I also left my job. Did you guys know that? It was big news. Hollywood Reporter covered it, and I didn't even kill anybody or their waiter. Thank you so much for sticking with the podcast during that time. There are going to be plenty of new episodes coming. We're going to get back on track with one every other week. And personally, I'm going to go back and listen to some old ones because I don't know about you, but I have to figure out how to get a job now. Anywho, my guest is Family Guy writer Chris Regan, who, as it will become immediately apparent, has a knack for eliciting howls of laughter out of yours truly. Chris and I go back to his days on, where else? The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, where he started soon after Jon, which means he saw what I saw. Jon's relatively quick and utterly understandable desire to change the status quo. I mean, when I started, it was still very much John sitting in on the old Kilbourne show. And I remember yeah, right. how, how completely displeased he would seem sometimes on air with some of the stuff we had written. And I think like a big turning point was we had written some kind of act one headline about prisoners in a prison somewhere going on riot because their underwear wasn't clean. So every joke was, you know, uh, records about prison laundry are spotty. You know, it was all just one poop joke after poop joke after piss joke. And you could see him on air just delivering all these jokes through gritted teeth. Mm-hmm. And um, I could tell then that, oh, this isn't, <laughs> this will not stay. Like many employed comedy writers, Chris talks about the importance of early contacts and collaborations. We discuss his post-TDS jobs, most of which were relatively short-lived, but great learning experiences, all of them, and for the most part really fun, which is nice since they were comedy shows. And how can you leave out the fact that he ghost-wrote a book with none other than William Tiberius Shatner? What, what? Oh my goodness. It's good to be back. Thanks for joining me. This is episode 40. 40, people. My guest is Chris Regan. I'm J.R. Havlin. You're part of the writer's block now. Good choice. J.R. Havlin, Cats yeah. on the Porch, in our condominium apartment, Culver City. Who used to live here? Uh, well, no, um, John from Chips, this was his home when when we would... Not this apartment. No, 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 but, but th- this complex, right. when they would go behind the scenes and you'd see them, you know, uh, off-duty, playing volleyball with girls. Uh, and swim, didn't they always use a pool? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what, that would have been here. here. What, what, where did where did Ponch live? Like in a probably like in a tent or something. <laughs> Ponch was a noble savage. <laughs> <laughs> here, let's save it. <laughs> Welcome back to the writer's block after whatever what seems like a seventeen year hiatus. Oh, uh, this is like a season premiere then. Maybe it will be. I don't know. I'll just leave this in in case, and I might do Ross before you. You know, mm. because this, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it to see which one's more interesting. Okay. To be honest with All you. right. It'll be me. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Chris Regan, former writer for the Daily Show with John Stewart, current writer for Family Guy, and star of the uh, Academy Award snubbed short film Sanford Van Johnson. 
<laughs> wow. A Life Near the Theater. Oh, my goodness. It's nice that some people remember that movie. Some people. Please. There's got to be some. I can't believe it doesn't get the action like The Room. That should, be like, that should get like midnight showings. That movie was mentioned in a review in the New York Times. That's vague thing to say like <laughs> you're not you have to be more specific about what the mention was like Sanford Van Johnson is the biggest piece of shit New York Times <laughs> no no not at all because we did a daily show at the movies night remember yes indeed at the IFC theater my you, movie was in that Ed Helms movie was in that you had a short film in there Ed American Helms American Zombie sh- I think short. was the name of his mine um, was uh that's Catskills, right. Catskills Redemption um Sarah Walker who worked mm-hmm. as a PA yeah, on the show yeah. she had a film in it and Eric Drysdale and I had a film and uh, the New York Times reviewed the night of films. Really? Yeah. What did it say about mine? It was kind to all of us. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't really. I don't remember reading that review. No, no. It, it was. Um. Uh. It, it was kind of a highlight, and it was a very small sidebar-y sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. It, it hadn't run on a Friday. Like it wasn't. But they didn't shit on us. There was no, no reason to. No. 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 It was a hey. Um, there were some fans of The Daily Show out watching films by people who wrote on The Daily Show. Yeah. But, um, I mean, that night never happened again. And Because right. um, every so often, not every so often, once or twice I have Googled Sanford Van Johnson, A Life Near the Theater, which is a film that Eric Drysdale and I made where I was playing um, a very old man uh, who lived in a tiny little apartment who was obsessed with the theater. His bed was in the kitchen. Seen in New York. His apartment was a kitchen. His bed was in the kitchen. <laughs> and it was kind of based on every old man I would see in the late 80s at a restaurant called Windows on the Village in Greenwich Village on 6th Avenue. And it was always very elderly men doodling on napkins and complaining about Mrs. Guggenheim and all these people they knew in New York in the 1950s. So um, Eric and I thought it would be a good idea just to put me in gray hair paint and walk around Manhattan for a couple of days. Reminiscing. Reminiscing about Mr. Fossey and Ms. Verdon and uh, all his great friends from the theater community. I don't know what Ms. Verdon is. Uh, Gwen Verdon, married to Bob Fossey. Well, don't say it to me like I should know. For a know long it. time. Well, I mean, yeah. depends how rich you want your life to be. <laughs> um, but, you know, Eric and I thought it was very funny. And um, needless to say, maybe a handful of other people did too. Yeah, and no, I loved it. Eric has a copy of it. I'm not sure if I do. Really? You don't have a copy of it? How's that even possible? I don't know. But it's got to be like on Vimeo or something. Nope. Nope. Really? It's not online. I I try to, I keep a firm handle on what of mine winds up online. Really? Yeah. Wow, I'm surprised that's not online. I would tell viewers to go find it, but that's too bad that it's not. Chainsaw, the Catskill Chainsaw Redemption, Your however, friend. is online. You okay. can find that. that Look was, it up. It was fun. That was a production. How much did that cost you? A little over 10 grand. Wow. Holy cow. Yeah, for no fucking reason at all. But it was a good learning experience. And like, uh, I, I didn't, I, I, I paid for probably two thirds of that. You shot that on film. Yeah, I mean it was a, it was a it was a whole thing, and it was a I mean, it was like in three days and just a mess of a thing. Like I directed the actors, my buddy um, Matt Unger directed the, uh, the the photography, but he okay. he helped the DP that we hired and a whole a little crew and put them up and fed them bagels and some of them bitched about it, and I was like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> I'm shooting on film here. Yeah, my senior thesis film from film school won an award from the American Film Institute and was on A and E for about two and year, two years. And what was that called? It was called It All Comes Out in the Wash. That is on YouTube. Um, but uh, yeah, I really thought I was going to be all set in the film world because that was my. <laughs> you had it. You. you that yeah. Was con- yeah, I was flown out to LA to pick up an award, and was that uh, at nothing uh, happened um, quick. Where was that? In Ithaca U- College. Ithaca. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I remember I with write- Mike Royce, Danny Vermont. Yes, yeah, they were they were upperclassmen, and I was underclassmen. So make sure I 
Yeah, right. I'm not as old as Mike Royce right, or, yeah. or uh, Danny Vermont. Yeah, we all worked on a comedy show together on the local TV station in Ithaca. Uh, Andrew Daly worked on it. Andrew Secunda, another writer out here. Yeah, I know him. I've heard his. I don't, uh, I'm not, I don't know Andrew Daly. Andy Daly from Review with Forrest McNeil. He okay. worked on on this show as well. And uh, yeah, I a lot of guys I did col- a comedy with in college are doing it out here now. Isn't that the case? I mean, the, did you... Um, so when you came out of college, you had this film. You thought mm-hmm. that was going to be a thing. You're going to be a filmmaker. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And was it a comedy? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. that was always your angle. Yeah. Yeah. It always was. I. I. You know, I went to film school. I wanted to direct films, but I very quickly learned that I don't like any sort of production, uh, which is something that kind of holds on to today. Which is why Family Guy is great because most of that is produced out of the country. <laughs> you just have no choice but to let it go. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I much prefer writing and working with writers and actually being on set and editing things and doing all that other crap. But there is no on set at Family Guy. No, no. I mean, there uh, on our floor are tons of artists who do all the drawing and there's storyboarding and stuff like that. And Have you had them do a character of you yet? No, no. I, I don't know how long you have to be there before that happens. I think sometimes when you go, you're given one as a gift. But yeah, I have not been depicted yeah, and right. any sort of, although a chapter from my life is sort of winding up as a plot um, next season on the show. Well, isn't that where isn't that uh, um, often the case that uh, writers get their ideas from you know? I mean, you bring your own life. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it causes grief in relationships. Yeah, yeah. But I, I was chattering one day at work about how I one time acted in a Korean soap opera. In like 1997. Sounds like Family Guy's hair. Yeah. And uh, we were joking, like, wouldn't it be funny? Because I've never seen it. I've never been able to get a hold of it on DVD. And we were joking about, wouldn't it be funny if I ever went to Korea one of these days? And it turned out I was a huge star. And uh, there's going to be a Family Guy episode where the character of Quagmire reveals that he was in a Korean soap opera. And they go back. And oh, he, my God. He, he, fantastic. He, he's enormous. So. Well, they, but they, And that's kind of hilarious because it's such a great example of... Where do you get a ridiculous idea like that? Well, it happened. Yeah. To, it happened to me. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, if you think about your own life, there are some extremely unusual things that have happened to you, no matter who you are. Yeah. And um, if you have the imagination and the energy and the, the the people around you to help you out, you could be amazed at what you can turn into mm-hmm. an interesting story for other people to watch. So. Um, you come to you. You finish up college at Ithaca with yeah. what degree? Uh, uh, cinema photography. Was cinema my major. photography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and is I had that it. like director of photography. Is that no? It's cinema and photography. So oh. you learned theory and you learned photography and how to how to actually film things and stuff like that. So you know how to use a camera? Yeah, I mean a film camera, but no one uses them anymore. All my skills, my practical hands-on skills, twenty-five years ago when I got out of college, are no good to me. Like yeah. I used to know how to edit film. Right. And things like that, actually yeah. cutting it with scissors and well, gluing it together. That's what Louis does still, I think. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, Sometimes. Uh, uh, God bless him. I, I see what people can do now and it's so much easier. Maybe if it was that easy in film school, I'd still be doing it. But it, it, doing it the old fashioned way was a real headache. Right, right, right. And uh, I got out and I started working at Nickelodeon. I was a PA and I got fired from that job pretty quickly. A guy named Joe Stillman got me my job there who went to So you college. were writing promos? No, no. I was getting people coffee. And, uh, and you got fired from that? Yeah. For insubordination, I assume? No, just not being good. I think what ha- getting people coffee. It's like, <laughs> I said milk. Get out. No, I th- someone told me what happened was um, I had 
to catch a bus to go visit my father or something on a Friday afternoon, a Friday night, like seven o'clock. And they asked me to run something downtown and I asked another PA to run it downtown and she did it for me. But apparently that was a, that was a straw that broke the camel's back. I didn't think I was doing a bad job, but apparently, apparently I was, but I got fired, but I started working on kids game shows and I started writing then, which was good. I wrote for make the grade starring Lou Schneider. He was um, yeah yeah I know from, from everybody yeah, loves down Raymond. the shore yeah yeah yeah, yeah Pala Johns and I wrote uh, I wrote um, for Family Double Dare really as well mm-hmm. there was a Family Double there Dare. was yeah uh, was this Double was... Dare like R rated not family <laughs> it was a whole no. family that would do it I don't yeah, know yeah like. yeah yeah you would have the kids and their parents running Isn't that around where the and... whole slime thing came into play uh huh okay yeah that was a very big part of their brand for yeah. a long time and uh, then they moved to Florida and I was out of work. Like all of all of Nickelodeon just packed up and went to Orlando, and then I wound up in advertising. <laughs> in advertising, mm-hmm. which was something I fancied myself doing for some reason. Was uh, it? Tell me about your Mad Men years. Uh, well, it, I worked at an ad agency at Sony Music, with the record company. I love to think that, especially with you, that it really was like Mad Men. Like you're just drinking scotch in the middle of the oh, day. Well, and- there was a lot of drinking that used to go on. I mean, this was the early '90s. When the record companies made tons of money and they spent it like water. Yeah, right. I, I had my own office. Spent it like water. <laughs> I, mean, I had my own office on the 30th floor at 550 Madison. I didn't know anything. <laughs> and no one knew anything. And everybody would kind of go out for lunch and then get a little drunk and then nap in your office. But I would just have to write ads for records. Like um, Michael Jackson History album is the greatest hits. Like my Capital ta- H-I-S. Yes, yes, his story. Uh, I wrote an ad line for that that said, uh, history begins June 15th. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, and, and then I took a nap. <laughs> yeah. I, I, made, <laughs> I a trem- made a margarita and I, took a nap. I made a tremendous amount of money. And um, it wasn't particularly labor intensive. So I would leave in the middle of the day and go audition for TV commercials and stuff like that. And I was doing sketch comedy and improv and all that other stuff at night. But with it was who? A, what, what, what name? What, um, I was in a sketch troupe with the Stengel brothers from Letterman Good Lord. for a while. And Andy Daly, who I mentioned in yeah, uh, right, right. review. Uh, Doug Abels was in it. A uh-huh. uh, guy wrote for SNL for yeah. a long time. We were, and you know. We were all such dynamic performers that we wound up as writers. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, except but, for Andy. Uh, but the, but that is a, um, a, a route, you know. Is a, mm-hmm. I mean, stand-up comedy for one, for sure. Yeah. And uh, improv, I think it's interesting because I was reading something um, in Mike Sachs's book. I'll be talking to Mike Sachs when I get back to New York, and mm-hmm. that'll be a good one. He's got this great book called "Poking a Dead Frog." Yep. And. Um, uh, and there was a, uh, I think it was a, with Cheselneck where you worked. Yeah. Um, and it was a, just a quick thing with him where he was talking about, you know, one of the routes into writing is stand up. Um, and uh, it was interesting what he said about it because it forces you to write all the time mm-hmm. and to be very specific about it because now you have to go up on stage and defend your writing. So yeah. it makes you put that much more of an effort into it and gives you that automatic practice. Whereas, Improv is not like that, but improv is such a, some more of a community and gives you a better sense of working with people. Uh, Stand up is such an isolated thing uh, creatively. Yeah. I think because stand up got me my job in the Daily Show eventually. And I I can go back to that. But improv, I think, is also good for your writing because you're always forced doing improv to find a way out of situations. And I find if you have that skill, you can always force your way out of whatever hole you've dug yourself in as a writer. 
if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think also uh, what little I know of improv, it, it also helps you to focus on what the scene is actually about so yeah. that you don't, you don't stray from that and you recognize when you do. Yeah, yeah. People who are good at that do that. I, I tried improv with the, uh, the first time ever uh-huh. and I was only good for... I was good for nothing but coming in and telling a quick joke. Yep. Get now. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I knew my role and I had a couple of good ones, but it was like, I'm not going to do the other stuff these guys are doing because they're good at it and yeah. I don't know what it is they're doing. Yeah, whenever you see any improv, you can always tell who the stand-up comedian is who's yeah. trying it out. Yeah. He's standing a couple of feet away from everyone downstage so everyone but can see him. I, I had the sense to at least have the joke be about the scene mm-hmm. and to help help it go along. And I did a couple of things where it was like I was... You know, yes, ending, but I was too afraid to then get really involved and let it go wherever it goes, yeah. but stay on the right track. I was like, Ew, no, here's my <laughs> joke. See you later, everybody. Was, was this in New York? Yeah, it was at the pit. On the, no, not the pit. The UCB, UCB? West. Okay. I don't know where I was. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I had no idea. I think it was Tavern on the Green. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great place to do it. Probably. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, I, I then started doing stand up because I tried a lot of comedy things that just didn't work out. <laughs> like improv, it was fine. I hit a certain point. The sketch stuff was fine. I got a commercial agent. I did some commercials with it. But when I started doing stand up, that was the real discipline to be constantly writing all the time. And uh, um, that's how that's how I began selling jokes to Colin Quinn on SNL when he hosted Weekend Update. And oh, really? Yeah. yeah that's, that was, so that's your first paid. Like, comedy writing gig yeah yeah faxing into snl uh-huh yeah right. and i i sold a lot to him too which was really good he was paying 100 bucks a pop and i had gotten his fax number from alex sulkin a longtime family guy guy because he was a stand-up too and he had it and, and you knew him back then yeah oh, yeah wow. and um because I used to do a lot of topical stuff a lot of just stuff out of the newspaper right. what kind of killed my stand-up career I remember someone telling me when I quit eventually it was someone from Aspen I auditioned I did pretty well and they're like you know you don't have a persona and I said oh but, uh, should I wear a hat or something you know I mean <laughs> should, I, should I develop a tick of some kind I have an eye patch I can put on <laughs> yeah. if you like but I mean that was always I would just go up and do jokes about what was going on in the country and um, John started at the Daily Show and apparently he asked Colin if he knew of anybody new and good who might be good for the show and Colin put it in, put in a good word for me with John, wow. and um, and I'd never even met Colin at that point. I've only he's a really nice guy. Yeah, I've only met him once yeah. since then. I, I I thanked him. I uh, sent him a gift at the time. I believe he's easy to talk to, which is you, you never know with with a lot of people in entertainment. Yeah, let alone the people that you see as being like he is. He has sort of a sort of a gruff, mm-hmm. off off putting, you know, stage personality a little bit, but uh, he's a uh, um, yeah, I might be off on that a little bit, but I think I'm right. And but in person, he's great. I, I love talking to him. I approach celebrities very, very carefully. Um, not long after I got out of college, I was at a party with Squeeze, the British band. Oh and yeah, they, they were terribly rude to me. Their, what was their hit? <laughs> uh, they, I, I, like I hate to say that about a band, but what was their hit? Squeeze. Uh, oh, uh, Black Coffee in Bed. Yeah, and Black Pull Muscles, yeah, muscles yeah, from yeah, a Shell. Yeah, sure. And uh, I went up to talk to them, and they all really <laughs> blew me off. <laughs> Terribly. Oh, well, you, know, you don't just jump into a squeeze conversation. <laughs> I, I, I thought I could because I was at this VIP party that my brother had got me into. So I figured like, oh, a squeeze is here. Let me go chat them up. And no, that, that was not allowed. <laughs> I was not to be talking to squeeze. You get away from squeeze. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk more about uh, your early jobs, getting out of The Daily Show, and then uh, move on to some more future stuff. This sure. is Writer's Block. I'm here with Chris Regan. We'll be right back. 
feels good. I missed writer's block, didn't you? Let me know. Call me. My number? Uh, five, 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 P with three E's. Better yet, just email me at writersblockpodcast at gmail.com. I'll get back to you. Just ask the people I got back to. And speaking of getting back, let's get back to episode 40, The Return of the Writer's Block. We're back. This is J.R. Havlin. This is Writer's Block. I'm with Chris Regan, writer for Family Guy. But before that, a laundry list of uh, what may be considered accomplishments. About half. Of half. <laughs> First of which we were just talking about writing for um, writing jokes for Colin Quinn, which was a, a you know a, the faxing in of jokes to mm-hmm. these guys was a was you know to the Tonight Show to to Letterman to to SNL to Mar was a was a really strong in back then that kind of doesn't exist, but it sort of exists in the form of Twitter at this point now. So, yeah, you know that's where you show your skills, but now you're getting paid to be a comedy writer. Yeah. And so that's that's in you. That's what you want to continue doing. Mm-hmm. And you know that. You want to make a career out of this. The SNL thing runs dry or whatever happens to it. What do you do? Uh, well, I, I was kind of snatched away mid, midstream. You know, I, oh, by I, the Daily Show? Yeah. Oh, yeah. so, oh, yeah. And you, so you just got a call from like Ben or something? Or? No, 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 no. This was before that. Um, John had just started and... Colin had put in a good word, and at the same time he put in a good word. You got a call from Kresge. I got a call from Kresge. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Could you hear his Hawaiian shirt on the other? <laughs> good old, you know, Chris Kresge helped me out because leaving my advertising job. Former head writer for the Daily former, Show. He was there for about a season. Yeah. V- very nice man. Yeah. Did a lot of ghost writing, which I have also done. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Shatner and such. Without Chris even... Kresge wrote a Shatner book. I, I worked with Shatner wow, on, on, on a book. But yeah, he called. What a me. thing to have in common. <laughs> really, you do. And he had he passed away by the time I worked with Shatner. And you know, I would have loved to have talked to him. Yeah, just, right. You know, get Absolutely. some advice. Yeah. But um, or just share stories. I mean, we'll talk about yeah. that a little bit. I, so <laughs> but uh, but yeah, he and uh, Madeline interviewed me, and uh, John came in right at the very end of the interview. And I remember he was wearing sweat clothes and eating Chinese food out of a styrofoam container. Nice. And uh, just kind of sat down for two, yeah, two or three minutes. Um, asked me if I was going to be one of his guys. I was like, uh, uh, sure, <laughs> fine. And then he, uh, and then he got up and left and I started a week and a half later and Kresge took care of me because Comedy Central was really, really lowballing me. And I had already, I already needed to take a pay cut from advertising to work in TV yeah, right, you know, right. to, to achieve my dream. But, uh, but he made sure they didn't rip me off too terribly bad. So he started at 800 a week. <laughs> you know, it honestly, it wasn't bad. I think... I like how that's laughable in this industry. <laughs> oh, please. 50K, please. I'll take it. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't turn on the computer for $800. <laughs> um, no, uh, no, it, it was a pretty... Riff it, was, it was a pretty good rate. And... I started there, and there was, you know, a little bit of turmoil there at the time because Kilborn had left a couple of months beforehand. I think John had started in January of '99, and I started in late February, early March wow, of '99. Yeah, yeah, right. And um, uh, then there was a lot of. He turn- was trying to clean house, but I wouldn't let him. Yeah, no, there was a lot oh, of. I think within a year and a half, I was like fourth most senior guy <laughs> on staff. Like there was a lot of a lot of house cleaning. I just tried to keep my head down, and um, you know, and I was there for seven years altogether and you know started around you were there already three years but you know we were there as part of that transition from being a show that not all that many people paid attention to to all the emmy stuff and 
2000 yeah. election certainly was and a big... And to show that even in your stretch changed considerably um, in yeah. content and in and in the way that we did things and, um, and our role there and what skills we had to use was... Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that just a little bit yeah. and the adjustments that you felt yourself making from what was, even at the beginning of John, still a relatively pop culture heavy show yeah. to uh, by the time 2000 rolled around and certainly by the end of 2000 with the elections, uh, it became really a much closer thing to what it is today and, and, and far more political and the media became our target. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I started, it was still very much John sitting in <laughs> on the old Kilbourne show. And I remember yeah, right. how how completely displeased he would seem sometimes on air with some of the stuff we had written. And I think like a big turning point was we had written some kind of act one headline <laughs> about prisoners in a prison somewhere going on riot because their underwear wasn't clean. So every joke was, you know, uh, records about prison laundry are spotty. You know, it was all just one poop joke after poop joke after piss joke. And you could see him on air just delivering all these jokes through gritted teeth. Mm-hmm. And um, I could tell then that, oh, this isn't, <laughs> this will not stay. And then, you know, uh, it began to, we weren't seeing so much footage earlier in the day of, you know, a dog who can deliver mail and all the other crazy stuff, or, you know, the world's oldest turtle that we would then blow out. Um, my first joke that I wrote that John did mm-hmm. was, uh, just to give you an example, was that Popeye and Olive Oil had gotten married. <laughs> <laughs> and my joke... Which I think got applause, maybe <laughs> to his chagrin, uh-huh. was that uh, um, uh, that uh, Olive Oil had only one request <laughs> that uh, um, on on the wedding night, uh, be, because of the size of his forearms, there would be no fisting. <laughs> oh boy! John did that I'd like joke. to th- I'd like to thank the Peabody Committee for the. <laughs> Extraordinary on it. Yeah. Cut to 15 <laughs> years later, I've got eight Emmys and, a, and two Peabody's. <laughs> but, but yeah, he... he um, individual achievement. Yeah, of course. Yes, yeah. That's how they oh. give them away. <laughs> but, but yeah, obviously things were going to change there. And, uh, you know, he wasn't happy about that. And, I mean, I mean, the 2000 election, obviously, I don't know how much you've discussed this on the podcast, was a big kind of turning no, point yeah, yeah, go ahead. for us because it had gone on for months and that was the only thing we covered then. Yeah. I mean, it was such a big news story and such an important news story and such a silly news story that, you know, it suddenly became uh, uh, an area that only a comedy news show could really cover effectively. And that's when people started, you know, the media loves being talked about and that's when they started talking about us. And um, I mean, that 2000 election, the 9-11 stuff, the America freaks out, I think certainly was kind of a watershed moment for The Daily Show because, I mean, you know, after 9-11 happened, how tough it was to get the show going again. Uh, I remember we had Carell come out with puppies. Did, do you remember that segment? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was that with... the first day? Um, we did a, we did a, we, 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 the first day back was John doing his thing and then yeah. like Carell coming out with puppies maybe and then, and then a, a field piece of Ed, you know, with Ed Helms 
running around in in the like uh, yeah. like swim trunks. Yeah, I mean, I think with a ball cam. I, I think mean, I think uh, I think he had done a, a, a repeated an old segment with that guy Doty or I, I don't know what he did, but it was it was very much a fuzzy. Oh yeah, and at the end of it, John brought out a puppy. The, the, that's what happened at the very at the very end of our first nine eleven show. John introduced like some pit bull puppy he had to the crowd and like pulled it up front of the desk and showed it. But a couple weeks later, we had Steve Carell be a wildlife expert mm-hmm. where he had a pith helmet and safari gear on. And we were just completely in the dark, not knowing what to do. I think you had, uh, um, you had a lot of fun with Steve Carell because yeah. uh, um, in particular you had, you kind of were the, the main mind behind uh, the, the green grocer. Yeah. But uh, produce Pete, Steve Carell. Yes. yes. Produce Pete, Steve Carell, which was, which was uh, talk about the concept of that, and and also oh this is what I'd like to do. Let's, let's talk about that, and then the Colbert Report. Okay, let's talk about that. Sure. So uh, this was a piece that I think you did. You come up with it? The, yeah, Protus I mean, uh, Protus Pete was uh, just something I did completely on spec. Just Google that on, or put that into the the Daily Show website, and you'll find all the Protus Pete things, which are. Carell at his very best nerdiness, <laughs> and, and so just like just a wreck. Yeah, just, and it was one of the. There was a produce guy on the local CBS. Uh, news. There often is. Yeah, yeah, in New York, and his name was Produce Pete. And I would just watch that and think, like, oh, how did he arrive here? And wouldn't it be great if this guy was a real journalist and had been busted down to talking about what was in season? The, so the, you liked his character week. and then went ahead and created a sad, sad <laughs> backstory. <laughs> oh, really? T- the and, worst possible thing. And the angle of Produce Pete was Steve would always be, he didn't be in a suit with um, an apron on. And he'd be talking about what was in season, be pluots or watermelon. And about 10 Very or, kind of sincerely. Yeah, very sincerely. And then about 20 seconds... There'd be some sort of remembrance of things past Marcel Proust's <laughs> reminder from the fruit of some terrible event in his life, and he and we learned that he was living in a men's residence at the time because he'd been yeah, divorced. Yeah, I remember the first time I tasted a pluot. I was at a yeah, right. yeah, yeah, and that uh, he had suffered from scurvy in his <laughs> lifetime, and, uh, and there was an episode where he was just giving uh, Christmas home decorating tips, and it went went into like how someone had. Re- at his men's resident, he was trying to create a Victorian Christmas. <laughs> For some reason. <laughs> and so in a This scroll. is very you. This yeah. is a kind of this is your yeah. voice getting through and on to the show. Yeah. Which is, and, you know, and something I, I also read in uh, Mike Sachs's book, you know, when people are talking about staffing their shows, the ideal is to find people that are not the same, that have a sense of the show, but also bring their own thing to it so that you can inject that. This is a really good example of that, that like you're the guy who would have written that, not me. Yeah. And it was, that was important for me because as my time, in the daily show went on, the daily show became much more issue oriented. Less and, produce Pete, Steve Carell. Yeah. And a bit more wonky, but produce Pete to me was my way of getting just that dumb, silly comedy yeah. in there. That Which he still I likes feel- to do, but not yeah. on a regular basis. It's just when it's, you know, as, as organic as possible. Yeah, I mean, but it was me just trying to get something on that was completely in my comfort zone. And Steve would, you know, there was never a rewrite on it. He would just take it and make it so much better. And I loved that John and Madeline and Ben, whatever, would just let, in the Produce Pete segments, and a lot of them are on YouTube on the County Center website, yeah. just let the uncomfortableness hang yeah. in the air. Well, and that was also Steve doing that. And that's yeah. where he's, I don't, he, I'm sure he had this little tick before or trick, um, but he used it 
to great effect and frequently on Produce Pete, where he laughs to himself and looks off to the side, like <laughs> he's looking like for he's some looking Confederate for a crew, in the crowd, a crew member right? who might be laughing with him, like. Like, there's got to be a teamster here that's amused by that, correct? No? Anybody? <laughs> well, I guess I'll continue. I know. It was, there was such a profound sadness about him oh, and his yeah. character in that that I, I really, really loved. And yeah, we, we did a whole... And I, I wrote them alone for a long time. After a while, I think they began to sense that I was hitting some of the same beats. And uh, they tossed Drysdale into the mix, and he, he co-wrote a couple. But that was really one of the one things I could point to at The Daily Show that I was like, yeah, that that's, I'm really proud of that. And it was a good thing to have also, which maybe this is something you found out now, but in putting together a Daily Show reel... <laughs> Yeah, um, which, which I gave up even thinking about yeah. five years ago. Yeah, my real, I mean, I left in 2006. There's some great Enron stuff on there yeah. <laughs> you know, at the time. Well, yeah, but but I mean, on top of that, at, at this point, it's just, a, you know, it, it just became extremely hard to sincerely take credit for something. Yeah, yeah. You know, as it mostly is in any writer's room. So mm -hmm. I think they kind of understand that. And, and people who are going to hire you and look at stuff like that, I think they understand that like on a show like that or kind of any show, but particularly on that show, anybody worth his salt knows like if I'm going to show you something from that show and say, yeah. I, I have to say I was in on this, mm -hmm. you know, and hope that that they either single out a joke that actually was mine or that I can seem sincere when I say it was mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you kind of have to hope that, hey, I was on for 70 years, I was on for 17 years, I must have been doing something right. Yeah, right. You know? yeah, and if yeah. you like that show, you might have liked me, but but so, yeah, but yeah, there's a lot of produce peanut on, on my old reel that I don't show anyone anymore. So the other thing is, and, and uh, I've told this story before, because this was the origin of the Colbert Report. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Uh, that was something where they were looking, because we were doing these minute-long bumper things, like there was Produce Pete, there was John Magazine, remember that? Yeah. Um, where that was around the time Oprah had O Magazine, we had a John Magazine, that would be a minute bump to a commercial that was all graphics driven, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they are very funny, the audience liked them. And they wanted to do some more for other correspondents. And I think it was Steve Bodo and I were working on some versions of these, but they wanted to do a something with Colbert, you know, based on the O'Reilly thing called the Colbert Report <laughs> with a hard T. And what we came up with was just a 60-second commercial for some book that Stephen had written that was obviously an O'Reilly take. And it was mostly Stephen just turning the camera and saying, you got the balls to read my book? Do you? Do you have the balls? I mean, he yeah. said balls like eight or nine times. Yeah, right. And uh, we wrote another one you for... You can go back and see these. There were several of them. Oh, are they are they oh, on there? On the website. Okay, yeah, I've watched them recently. And there was another one that I I thought was funnier, frankly, uh, called Sunday Mosaic with Rob Cordry, which was a parody of a local affairs program for for minority viewers that a lot of local affiliates will show at like six a.m. on a uh, Sunday yeah, morning, yeah. and they'll have some head of the Congress for Racial Equality on just, and it was mostly it was basically Cordry and the Dashiki talking with black leaders from the community. And I thought that was really funny and kind of layered and nuanced. And um, But cut to four, four or five years later or something, and, and they tell us, like, oh, we're going to, the 1130 show is going to be the Colbert Report. And yeah. we're like, what? Yeah. How do you do a whole thing like that? Well, <laughs> you have a guy like Steven who can actually pull it off. Yeah, was, yeah. It wasn't even that. I mean, it was maybe a year later. It was, uh, they they turned that around quickly. That, 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 was, that was kind of a shock. Yeah, right. I think that's a good spot. We're going to take a little break again. 
This is Writer's Block. I'm J.R. Havlin with Chris Regan, and we'll be right back. Ah, nothing like a good Daily Show origin story. I love it. Hey, as long as I've got your attention, allow me to try to keep it. Follow the show on Twitter, at Writer's Block Pod. Follow me on Twitter, at J.R. Havlin. And while you're on there, give at Chris R. Regan a little love. That's R-E-G-A-N. And, of course, at Katy Perry. She needs it. She needs it, people. She's flailing. Time to talk about Chris's journey through the maze of different shows that ultimately led him to Family Guy. You know what block you're on. Act 3 coming at you. This is the Writer's Block. I'm J.R. Havlin. I'm here with Chris Regan. And we were talking about The Daily Show, and uh, we can move on from that. You sensed a desire building in you to uh, move on to scripted yeah, stuff, yeah. which is uh, not uncommon when people get the late night thing, which is a great gig to get mm-hmm. at first, but it seems like a lot of people want to do that, maybe because that's what they fancied themselves doing in the first place. So you come out to L.A., but you end up where first? Well, I do wind up in late night. I came out to L.A., I, I had uh, developed something for Fox, a sitcom that didn't go. Um, I had a book deal for a book that I wrote, uh, which came out and didn't sell. <laughs> and um, my wife... Uh, but what, So what are the deals? Just like, oh, we like this pitch. Here's some money. Go ahead and write it. Yeah. And then we're not going to do anything with it? Uh, n- no, it's go ahead and write it. And then you write it. And they say, okay, um, we like this, but it's not for us. You're now free to go and take it somewhere else. And Because uh, it was written for 20th Century Fox. It was a comedy Set in the set in the Balkan this War. This is your this is your uh, um, sitcom. Yeah, okay. yeah. This was a sitcom I developed while well, I was still at the Daily Show, and um, came out here. We developed it for Fox. Set so, in the Balkan War. Yeah, it was based on a real guy's life experience uh, in Eastern Europe in the early nineties, and uh, Macaulay Culkin was attached to be in it. V- very nice fella. Uh, very eager to to do. Oh, you actually had meetings with him. And stuff? Yeah, yeah. No, we, we went to pitch meetings together. It was. He's supposed to be a great guy. He's a right? very he's yeah. a, he's a terrific guy. But it was funny because uh, I would like drive him to to meetings occasionally, and it was just so strange yeah. driving. And like he'd have a knapsack on his lap, and I always felt like a divorced dad, like I'm dropping off a kid. Okay, Mac, tell your mother you had a good time. Um, but but that was a process, you know. Like I sold this thing, and it was it was for you know a decent chunk of change, uh, which is what you could do before 2008 in Los Angeles. It doesn't really happen yeah, anymore. Right. And uh, they gave me the courage to leave, and that didn't go. We shopped around a bunch of networks. Uh, no one wanted to do something surprise set in the Balkan yeah, war, uh, war in the you early shoot 90s. That in the valley. I think you could turn va- <laughs> Valley for Balkan. Yeah, we'll, we'll use the old mash sets. We'll just shoot Valley for Balkan. That's the idea. <laughs> and um, yeah, I had the book thing, and my wife uh, got into law school out here at UCLA, so we figured. Oh, that's right. Yeah, right. Yeah, let's go to California. I remember the party at the Friars Club. Yeah, yeah. And. Um, so it was come out here. I'm gonna really do the full court press for script. Yeah, right. And then I spent another couple of years in late night. I got a job uh, working at talk show with Spike Ferriston on Fox, uh-huh. and I was there for about eight weeks before the strike hit, and the strike killed that season of the show. Right. Uh, and then got a job on second season of Frank TV, which was a sketch show, which was really a lot of fun. Um, I didn't see the first season. The second season, I thought was pretty good. That got canceled. I went back to Spike Ferriston for the third season, and that was something where that was a half-hour late-night talk show that had some really popular stuff online. A, a lot of stuff on YouTube really took off. It never translated into viewers for us, uh, so we we never kind of got going. 
Fox eventually decided that the last six episodes of our third season were going to be an hour long uh, because Jay Leno was going to leave NBC and he was going to come over to Fox. And like everyone had this idea that Leno was going to take his show to Fox and we'd be the show on after it. Jay, you know, they moved into 10 o'clock and then Fox lost all interest in talk show with Spike Barriston. And we had this big rollout for our first hour episode and we were, and you know, we got back to shoot them and we Fox the first Ferriston ones were a half hour? Yeah, oh. yeah. The first two seasons were a half hour. The first part of the third season was a half an hour, and then we were going to do six hour-long episodes. Oof. But Fox lost all interest in us after Jay wasn't going to make the move. And I remember for our big debut hour episode, I think we had Lisa Kudrow, who'd been on two or three times. She had a relationship with Spike. So, um, you know, I, I launched a lot of late-night shows here that then were canceled. Uh, <laughs> I, I good. Let's talk about that list. Yeah, um, I was so on the Spike, Spike Ferris, and then 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 the canceled. sketch show, which is going to be different. Yeah, a, a totally different kind of yeah. work. But you find yourself doing that well. That yeah, a- I, I really did. The people there was were great. That was another thing where at at talk show with Spike Ferris and kind of my first production job after the Daily Show. I was expected to produce everything I wrote, and the Daily Show left me very ill equipped for that. You know, I was always just stuck at a desk and handing off jokes to people. Uh-huh. So that was a little tough. Frank TV was great because we I just sat in a room with a bunch of great writers and production people handled all the shooting. You'd see Frank walking around. It felt like being on a comedy show that you would see on a TV show about a comedy show. There was always someone walking by in a Roman gladiator outfit or, <laughs> or Frank in a big plastic yeah. nose, you know. And like the way you picture Mad Magazine's offices. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, hey, all right, all right everyone, let, let's get ready for the Pompeii sketch, you know, <laughs> on the soundstage. Um <laughs> You know, and that was t- completely different from anything. I didn't want to do another daily show, m- much to the chagrin of my representation. I, uh, for the first year after I left, there was like, hey, someone's doing an animated daily show. No. <laughs> Animal Planet wants to do a daily show kind of thing. No. You know, I did did not want to do that again. I wanted to do not, it. You don't mean daily show like. You mean just a show that happens every day or something? No, no. no like a daily show like kind of skewed take on the news. You know, something with puppets. It's right. going to be like the daily show. For a while, everybody was doing that. None made it to air. Uh-huh. Uh, then I wound up on Lopez Tonight for the first season. And how are you getting these jobs? Uh, th- Friends? Through, uh, submissions? Uh, uh, connections? Little, all of those were through my agents. Okay. Yeah. I mean, at Lopez Tonight, I knew the head writer. So they, but they still submit you somehow. But yeah. Did, but uh, um, Lopez Tonight was Tom, no? No, no, no. Oh. Tom took over eventually. The first head writer was a guy named Lance Crowther. Oh, sure, yeah. I I love Lance. I worked with him at Frank TV, and I had just emailed him when the show show was coming along. And uh, my wife's entering her third year of law school. And I'm like, hey, you know, could I submit? He was like, yeah, yeah, sure. But, I mean, CIA wound up submitting for me. And I was there for the first season. I quit that. I I quit that without another job to go to. (laughs) Lopez. Yes. It it was not a good fit. Uh And um, (laughs) uh, not, not at all. And uh, the kind where I was really considering... You, you, because, I mean, we can talk about that for a second. Just um, your sense of humor in the end just wasn't clicking with, with George. You know, I never had trouble getting stuff on. It, it was mostly the people producing the show. It was this very schizophrenic show. And they were tied to demographics all the time. And when they discovered that not every Hispanic person in America was going to watch the show... They were floundering, and everything would change every week, and it would be a totally new show. They wouldn't let us repeat segments, which in late night is your lifeblood, because yeah, you're putting yeah. on a show every day. Right, top and, list. Uh, and, you know, and also, George wasn't my, you know, 
uh, you can see the stuff I've done. You can see his stand-up. I, yeah, right. It might not have been been a good fit, and it, just the environment was was uh, somewhat toxic. So I quit that. I was completely burned out on comedy. Uh-huh. I developed one or two other scripted things in that time that that you know didn't didn't go again. So I was keeping my my feet in that world, but it wasn't really happening quickly enough. And I left Lopez. I had no job, and I got a call from my book agent who I hadn't worked with in a while, and. You know, I was I was in a coffee shop, calling me on my cell, and he's like, and he "Look, said, hey, great news! They want you to write another book. They're not going to publish." <laughs> well, this could be it. Uh, he really undersold. He's like, "Look, I got a thing. I know you're not going to want to do it." I'm like, all right, it's a ghostwriting job. I'm like, oh no. And he's like, "It's with William oh, Shatner." I'm like, "Oh, like I got to meet him." Where do I sign? <laughs> you know, I, I at least got to meet this guy. You know, and. Um, I met Shatner at his office, and uh, we hit it off immediately. And I was like, "Yes, I, I want to write write this book with him." And it was such a short Just give turn. Me one or two highlights of that meeting, please. Oh, it was it was so funny because I he got had to have said something that just kind of floored you, like. Oh, I mean, all the time. What, what was amazing was he has this office um, in Ventura, uh, Ventura Boulevard in Studio City. And I got there early because I didn't want to be late. And I was out on the sidewalk outside his office and it, be- it began to rain. Like, uh, well, I mean, because it's an office building. Then I walked up a couple of steps and I looked in the window and he's just right there at a desk reading a magazine. That was his office or he's yeah. in the lobby? No, no. He, he was, it, I was looking into his office window. Oh. <laughs> and I was wow. like, oh, maybe I shouldn't loiter outside. Did you knock? <laughs> You're all wet out in the rain. Hey, I'm Ghost Rider. I, it was so odd because here's this one of the most recognized men on earth uh, just sitting in his office with the, with, with the window facing Venture, just reading a magazine about horseback riding. Um, <laughs> but we went in there. Great detail. We hit it off. We spoke for like an hour initially. And, um, you know... It had to be a 50,000 word book. It had to be a humor title. And I started writing... Is it writing... about his life? Is it a personal biography? You know, it was an instruction manual called Shatner Rules about how to be him. He had written a very lengthy autobiography only about three years before that. With Kresge? No, no, no. no with, with another writer. I think Kresge had passed away by that point. His first books he, he wrote with Kresge. Okay. So this this was kind of a how-to to be him. And okay. what it was, I just tried to get stories out of him that he hadn't told in his previous books and then frame that into a, this is what I did right, this is what I did wrong, you know, you can do this too. But so, all of it tongue-in-cheek, jokey joke? Yeah, yeah. You know, but you know, on, I mean, from his honest uh, uh, actual events in his yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. And uh, no, no, it was it was a humor title. It was, it was sold as such. And uh, we... Uh, 50,000 words. I started it in January. They needed a manuscript by May, which was uh, kind of a big crunch, especially he's the busiest man I've ever met. So occasionally I'll be... <laughs> wow, somebody just wow. died in Culver City, but... <laughs> Someone screamed outside. Yeah, wow, was... what was that? Um, but because occasionally I'll just call his assistant and say, is Bill around to work on the books? Like, oh, he's in Australia for two weeks. <laughs> he would just vanish occasionally. But the night, one of the most pleasurable experiences. It's that transporter. I mean, how can you not? <laughs> I, and we would write and I would send off the, the transcriptions. And it's funny, the woman who transcribed all our conversations and our kind of our, our riff sessions that we would have 
was obviously a trekker because she would correct his and my Star Trek mistakes in parentheses afterwards <laughs> because, you know, he doesn't know the world top to bottom. And, oh, you that's know, hilarious. And, and like you'd I, make a reference to Star Trek that was wrong and yeah. she knew it was wrong. Yeah, because ah, he would say great. something that's like, you know. Assistant. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, she, he would say something like, you know, and Spock, blah, 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 being a Romulan. <laughs> and I would say, no, no, no. Yeah, the moment yeah. the, the transcripts in person would write Vulcan behind it. That like, was just it a must slip have been, of the tongue by Bill. Right? I mean, it must have been a, a thrill for her. You hear that, but have you but, like? We'll get back to it. I just wanted. To, have you heard the the you know the recording of Shatner talking about how he pronounces a certain word? Yes. Oh yeah. I, I never experienced that guy. I but it but it's really fun. Like I'm sure he was just really like he he'd had it up to here with a certain director or something. But yeah. What but what what was the word? Uh, I think it was courage. No, it wasn't. Courage. Or he was saying it courage. Something like. Yeah, but yeah. it was literally something like that where he says courage. In a in a in an audio just like a pickup take, and the director has to say, "Can we try that one more time?" But say courage. Yeah. What do you mean courage? Well, just can you just say courage instead of courage? I say courage. <laughs> yeah, he he does not suffer fools gladly. I mean, we. I think uh, writing a book with him is a, certainly a different kind of milieu for him. And I I experience nothing but a friendly, cooperative guy who. Out of all the people I've worked with, I probably hang out with him more than anyone. I've, I've, any other hang talent. out with him now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, hang out with Shatner. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's a, a very nice man. He's a lot of fun. Let's go over there now. <laughs> he, he'd probably go swimming with him. No, he he, he has great parties. Um, but I wrote that book, and that kind of really got me back on. Oh no, I still want to do comedy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it, wow. It's okay. And then I'd worked on The Burn with Jeff Ross, the first season on okay, Comedy yeah, Central. That's a, good, that's a good fit. Yeah, yeah. No, no I, I, Jeff was great. Uh, but then the Justinic Offensive, which I worked on a pilot of, came along and I jumped over to that for the first season. Okay. And um, those were all great shows. I still wanted to leave late night because, uh, you know, you don't make the money in late night that you make in scripted. That's one thing. And as you get older as a comedy writer, you begin to look at your bottom line a bit mm -hmm. more and realize how many more years am I going to be doing this. And especially when I worked on the Jesselnik pilot, um, and I shared an office with uh, Megan Amram, mm -hmm. a very, oh, very yeah. funny Andrew yeah. Law, another very funny guy, and I realized like, oh, I'm, a bit, I'm about twenty years older than these two. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> I, I, well, welcome to my world. Yeah, I mean, per perhaps you understand this, and that feels a little <laughs> weird. So, um, you know, I kept writing. I was having meetings with sitcoms. I, I met on Parks and Recreation, which I think led to a role on the show. It, it didn't lead to a yeah, writing that, job. Right. Um, but yeah, I'd been kind of floating around the Family Guy universe for a little while. I had a Parks and Rec spec script. You know, I had a spec script like everybody has. And uh, that that got me a meeting. Uh, At Family Guy. Yeah, yeah. And I had the meeting there. And I, I've known plenty of Family Guy writers like from years ago, stand-up. A, a lot of people I've known for about 20 years are, are working there. And, and they were uh, still there when you were going to get your job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a very big, large family of writers who kind of float in and out. When they have another project, they leave, but then they usually come back. I mean, it's a very large writing staff, as I'm sure Damien Fahey uh, covered. But yeah, then I, I got yeah, the job. More, more on, uh, um, on how Family Guy kind of operates a little bit on a day-to-day -day in the uh, Damien Fahey episode of Writer's Block. So look that up if that interests you. But go on. Yeah, no, no, I'm just here to talk about me. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've been there 14 months, and that's the longest I've had a job in seven years. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I, you know, I was just jumping from job to job to job, which is something I like doing. And I mean, it's something like we were talking about is is not uncommon. Yeah, no, 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 especially, you know, 
not out here. Right. Uh, you know, in New York, it seems like when there is a job, it becomes kind of a civil service job, and there are people who are there for years and years and years. And uh, you know, but out here, the nature of production being what it is, and how many shows get up and running, and how many shows then fold, a lot of people jump around. And I I liked that jumping around because. You know, uh, one of the reasons I got into comedy was not to show up at the same office every day. And after seven years of The Daily Show, I was beginning to think, like, is this why I got into this? You know, do I want to keep showing up to the same office every day and see the same people and, you know, begin to do... long enough you see different people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) People die. People are born. Well, at my going away, at my my dinner, Uh which I wish you could have made, but but yeah. But some some oldies did because they were in town for Tim's wedding. Okay. Um... I found myself introducing people, which did not occur to me. Oh yeah. So there. So when writers leave the show, we have a dinner and we do a roast and we have some fun with it. And I've been to many, but mm-hmm. never, never got a dinner. Ah. Never got a dinner. So I finally get my dinner, and there's a big, huge turnout, a real good turnout. Some people were in town for a wedding, so we like from LA, so there was a lot more people here. But I and it didn't even occur to me at all that like, well, everybody in this room knows each other, right? I, I, I mean, it's naive and stupid, but I just didn't think it through. And when I realized, like, oh, there's like half the people in here have never even met, it was, I was like, holy shit, dude, yeah, that's wild. But it was also nice to introduce them. <laughs> now, now that you're gone, there is no one on the writing staff I worked with as a writer there. Yeah, and that's yeah. a very weird thing. Oh yeah, me. the 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 most senior writer on the actual writing staff, I think, is five, four or five years. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bodo's there, but uh, yeah, but no, but he's he's executive producer. Yeah. But, but no, I, I did, I've done a lot of jumping around. There is something liberating about that, but there is, you know, there is something nice to be said for security. And I really like the job at Family Guy and it's nearby yeah. and it's been nice having a steady paycheck. And I, I had a summer off, which was great, which I haven't had since I was 16. What is a summer off? Uh, we're on hiatus. We're, we're on break. Well, that's how sitcoms work, operate. Yeah, yeah. So do you, do you have a guarantee of being on staff when it comes back around? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're in the middle of, a, of, this, of the, my second season. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're, our hiatus is occurring now, and I'm going to go back until March, between September and March, and then uh, they decide to pick me up for a third season, which I'm... They tell you ahead of time? Yeah, yeah. So they tell you before the summer starts, and then you have all that time to go ahead and work on... So what have you been working on? I've been working on a screenplay. Great. Based on another... A different which book. war? <laughs> no, uh, uh, this is based on an experience of mine, another book writing experience. I almost had a ghost writing... Set in the Falkland Islands. No, 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 no. This is uh, set here in Hollywood. People love making scripts about Hollywood. Yeah. But um, uh, I, had, town. I had another ghost writing assignment for uh, a cat named Colonel Meow. And he's a popular... Oh, you're not saying cat like a jazz guy. No, no, no. An actual cat. A cat. A popular internet cat named Colonel Meow. And my book guy called me and said, you know, the Grumpy Cat book sells 4,000 copies a week. The Little Bub book is selling 3,000 copies a week. I want you to meet with Colonel Meow because he's going to write a book. I hadn't heard <laughs> yeah. of Colonel Meow. And, uh, but he said it'll be a royalty deal. I could probably get you like 40, 60. Are you talking be- about an actual book thing or are you talking yes. about your screenplay? Well, my, my screenplay is based on this experience because I, I met Colonel Meow, lovely little cat. His owner was wonderful. She and her husband moved to Los Angeles to kind of get things going. You know, because the internet cat business is huge. I mean, 4,000 copies a week of a book is, I, is a good deal. I believe you, but I cannot get over <laughs> the fact that I feel like you're pulling my fucking no. leg. And I'm saying like, wow, I can finally really make some money in publishing. So I wrote a proposal, you know, uh, for what the Colonel Meow book would be. Um, 
and Sounds and like I I sent it in, and my book agents called me one morning and said, "We don't know how to tell you this, but uh, Colonel Meow is dead." <laughs> I was just gonna say that as a joke in advance. No. <laughs> And, and like that he day, choked on a hairball. And that day, he had some kind of heart problem. I, I, I was heart. Colonel Meow is dead. Your, I was your dreams are over. Your dreams in publishing are over. I was heartbroken to hear it because he was his owner is so sweet and so nice. But what really got to me was my um, book agent, who then read my proposal, who called me and said, oh, "We would have made millions." Oh, that's not. <laughs> oh, God. So, right. so it's it's about a guy who hangs all his fortunes on a cat, you yeah. know. And uh, I'm yeah. I'm trying to get it done within the next three weeks where I have to go back to work because I want to uh, I want to do feature stuff now, you know. Yeah, you always got to and keep then eventually it. direct. No, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy just writing and letting other people get you know hang out on sets all day. Well, that all sounds good, Chris. It's really great to catch up with you. Uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks for filling us in on all these uh, adventures of Chris Regan in Hollywood. No, it's a lot of fun. And beforehand. Uh, this is a nice lesson in sort of what it takes to continue to be a comedy writer and making adjustments and taking some gigs you might want, some gigs you might not want, finding other gigs and getting relationships, finding yeah. you know other jobs in different places. It's and- rare that a gig, even a terrible gig, doesn't lead to at least something Right. You know, down the road. If you handle yourself in an adult and professional manner. Yeah, well, that's a big if. Yeah. Big if. (laughs) And if you can do that, you really want half the battle because so many people don't. Time to go. Say goodnight, Chris. See you, man. That's it. Thanks again for rejoining Writer's Block Podcast. My next episode will be with Jason Ross, a writer for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, which, of course, tapes in New York. But Jason lives in L.A., How the fuck do you get that job? You'll find out. Thanks for listening. Say goodnight, blockheads. Blockheads.